0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Baseball Podcast. We're recording this on May 28th, so the day before Memorial Day. Tom, we're doing a Memorial Day special episode. You, We were just talking about how all you hear about when you think of, you know, military service and, and baseball is, you know, the legends. And there's nothing wrong with that. You hear about Ted Williams and Warren Spahn and Bob Feller and these guys that served during, you know, World War II in particular um, and all the amazing feats they did. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's amazing. We should probably do an episode on that later, but we wanted today on
1: Veterans Day
0: on Veterans Day. Yeah. We wanted to take some time today to go over the handful of players, you know, major league players who have died while serving the United States um, because they're players that as far as I know, you don't hear about, I had never really heard about any of these guys before I started looking into it. Um, But I think it's important, you know, because yeah, a lot of guys have served, but only, I think there are 13 names on here that, you know, pay the ultimate sacrifice, and I think we should take today or Memorial Day when this comes out to, right. to honor them. So that yeah, that's... so
1: so th- this is more of the the history podcast for today. Although you know, it's all baseball related, so fear not, those of you who like baseball, and we're sitting there saying they did a football podcast and now they're doing a history podcast. Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> I There's suppose plenty we have baseball are. to talk about.
0: I suppose we are um, branching out a bit, but yes, we're keeping it baseball centric. Don't worry. And I will say
1: we both really love, you know, we both really love history and baseball and baseball happens to be the sport that I would say has the most, you know, history or like Americana involved in it. So this is a good crossroads of things that we both care about a lot. So it was inevitable, you know?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That's a good way to put it. Um, and I will say one thing that I thought was interesting while I was researching this, I don't know if you found this, Tom, but um, there was a website called Baseball's Greatest Sacrifice, which was invaluable I while I was that. doing this. Sure and did. they had all the deaths during all, all the wars and also some guys who died uh, during peacetime um, of anybody who died while serving. That, that have played baseball but it went down to not only major league baseball not only the minor leagues but college players semi-pro players umpires things like that and the lists were just unbelievable i mean i I didn't have time to go through all of it um right. but you wouldn't believe it like you even went to like afghanistan there was a guy who was killed who played in the minors there were a couple of college ball players and stuff like that so we're focusing on the major leagues today because we had to pare down the list um and right. that's also you know i guess the biggest point of interest with the baseball podcast but i just wanted to mm-hmm. point out that um, you know, it's not just these 13 guys. It's it's plenty of guys. Um, and it right. goes all this the way back. This is not to the an Civil exhaustive War. list to no, be sure. not by any means. And it's also amazing to me that it goes all the way back to the Civil War. Um, of of players in any, you know, capacity in baseball who've who've died while serving. So I thought that was just something that we should note before we jump into our MLB guys. Anything else you wanted to say, Tom? Um, eh,
1: no, I think that was good. I mean, I'm thinking my first thought is uh like next Memorial day do, you know, the, and maybe not minor league players. So I feel like that would be a long podcast, but they do like umpires or something,
0: something like that. Or yeah. I was thinking, I think there were two minor league guys who received the medal of honor. Maybe it's something like that. Yes. Yeah, um, like that. or like, yeah, there are a couple of distinguished service cross guys. We could do something like that mm-hmm. um, of just, of, you know, incredible stories, but that's something we can tackle later. Like you said, we could yeah. do veterans day. Um, and I, I will say most of these guys are world war one. Um, there are a couple of World War II, there are a couple of Korean War guys, but we wanted to... Uh, well, why don't you take it? Why don't you tell them?
1: Well, uh, so my thought was that we should do this in chronological order. And it just so happens that Ethan and I, despite being 99% the same exact person, um, our interests in history do lie in different locations. So there, there's some crossover for sure. But for example, um, Ethan doesn't really know anything about World War One, and I've done a lot more reading about it than he has. So uh, the way we decided to split it up was that, like you said, there's eight World War One guys on this list. So I did six of them, and then Ethan covered the rest of the guys. So uh, we're going to do it in chronological order, so we're going to be jumping back and forth. And at least the way I played this, I don't know if you did it like this, but I didn't look at all at any of the guys that Ethan did because I want to be learning along with you guys. So, you know, we're going to be doing a little bit of an audience surrogate type thing when Ethan's on the mic. So uh, feel free to look at me as sort of the avatar of everything you've ever cared about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Two, Two of your guys I'm familiar with just because they have pretty incredible stories of being killed in action. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was hard to get away from when I was researching this, but a couple of right. other guys I'm sure I've never heard of. Um, and yeah, I think that's important uh, to be able to ask questions and stuff and not just rattle off, um, you know, a bunch of information. And I will say I'm not an authority on any of these players. So I, I don't pretend mm-hmm. to have all the answers or anything. So if you ask me something, I might just say, sorry, man, I don't know. Um, I just yeah. jotted down notes, but I'm going to do the best I can because a lot of, I think a lot of people have never even heard these names before. So I think it's, it's right. important that we do it. Um, So, yeah, I think we can just jump right in unless there's anything else you wanted to say. No,
1: let's start with
0: the Spanish-American War. (laughs) All right. So the first player up that we found in chronological order um, is a guy named Bill Stearns. And so I have that Bill Stearns was born in 1853 and he served in the Civil War despite the fact that he was only 12 years old when the Civil War ended. So it's not clear whether, because there were, you know, children basically who served in the Civil War. They were drummer boys, messengers, orderlies, things like that. So I would assume he didn't see action, but he was a member of the Grand Army of the Republic, which was sort of the organization for Civil War veterans. So it is proven that he was in the Civil War in some capacity, and he did serve. So that's remarkable in and of itself. Okay. Um, but then after the civil war like i said it ended when he was 12 years old he grew up he went on to play five big league seasons with the washington olympics flash nationals slash blue legs i guess they had a lot of name changes uh as well no. as the hartford dark blues and i really like that there are just a bunch of colors in the names back then uh, yeah I guess the, this is such now.
1: old-time baseball nomenclature. It, in it, it, it is like but it's still... never like you know well, like, once you get into, like, the 10s and the 20s, you start to get into, like, oh, let's name it after birds or whatever. In, like, yeah. the 1800s, it's always, like, you know, the the, the, the Worcestershire orange eyes. You know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, <laughs> there's always a color, and it's it's always, like, dude, this is such a mouthful. What it's are we really doing? It's
0: really old. Yeah. Well, I literally <laughs> have on here the Washington Olympics slash Nationals slash Blue Legs. So we played for all those different teams.
1: Right. Um, That's another he... thing is teams used to change their names constantly. Yeah, like especially minor league teams would change like yearly.
0: <laughs> yeah, so this is something I thought was really interesting because it's super old timey baseball. um Stearns pitched six hundred ninety nine and two thirds career innings with a four twenty eight ERA, which doesn't seem that bad by modern day standards. That's, that's is that solid. His,
1: is that his major league record?
0: That's his major league ERA okay. 4, twenty eight across six hundred ninety nine two thirds, so seven hundred innings okay he had he holds the record for the lowest baseball reference war of all time at negative 9.5 oh really which i guess that means he pitched for long enough not particularly effectively that he racked up almost minus 10 war which is remarkable but i mean i guess
1: pitching exclusively in the dead ball era 423 era is like pretty high
0: yeah yeah i just thought that was remarkable so hey pitch five years in the big leagues it's more that's five more years than we'll ever play yeah well so, hey do,
1: listen don't don't count don't rule us it out, out you know
0: <laughs> don't rule it out so well after his playing career ended Stearns enlisted in the army once more at age 45 upon the outbreak of the spanish-american war and the spanish-american war isn't super super important to american history we don't need to get into it but it was just a war with spain that took uh in a lot of places that weren't Spain or the United States, so like Cuba, the Philippines, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't need to get into the reasons why. Um right. serving with the first District of Columbia volunteers, so he volunteered, he wasn't drafted. Stearns took part in the American landings in Puerto Rico in July of 1898, but became ill during this time. Having contracted malaria, Bill Stearns was sent back home along with the rest of his company in mid-September, but was unable to recover. Stearns died in late December at the age of 45, becoming the first player in the history of MLB to become a casualty of war as, as well as the only player to die during the Spanish-American War. So I think that's kind of a remarkable life. He went from maybe the most important war in American history, the Civil War, grew up, played in Major League Baseball, and then enlisted again at 45 uh, to go fight in another war and then got sick and died of illness. So right. it's just think, a remarkable um... life to me.
1: This is, this is more of a history thing and less of a baseball thing, but um, it is kind of interesting how his career kind of traces from the U.S. arguably at its lowest point. Civil War is probably the lowest point in American history, you know, to uh, the Spanish-American War is kind of when the United States puts itself back on the map as a world power. So prior to the Spanish-American War, you know, The United States is over there. Nobody in Europe really takes them that seriously, but then they go up against Spain and they win and they take territory from Spain. And all of a sudden, you know, the United States is on the map as a world power. They're not, you know, what they are post-World War II and now where they're, you know, arguably the only superpower, although that's less true now. But after World War II, and especially after the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States is on top. At this point they're just one of the world powers. But it's, you know, his career sort of tracks the rise of the United States the same way that, you know, I don't know where I was going with the second half of that. But that's just that's okay that's something that I thought was cool about that story.
0: And I just want to point out like how amazing is it that he re enlisted at forty five. Like it wasn't like he was a young man who got drafted or he got all the pressure of, you know, you're twenty four years old, go fight. He was forty five. I'm sure he easily could have gotten away with not and he decided it was the right thing to do and and he died for it so bill Stearns, american hero now we're gonna jump into world war one we don't have to go chronologically by like oh this guy was october and this guy was yeah we're not gonna do that yeah so why don't you just give one of your world war one guys and then well another one
1: so the first thing i wanted to do was uh world war one is a conflict that it it, it's very different for americans than it is for europe because in europe world war one is stuck in their cultural memory um you know they make movies about it it really is something that Europe kind of never got over in terms of like the way that it affected their like national psyche and for the United States like a lot of people are just like oh well that was like World War II's like you know that was spring training for World War II right they just look at it like oh it's the mostly the same sides you know ooh, the Germans we fought the Germans and they were monsters so you know it's just world war Two, part one which is you know there is some truth to that but you know i wanted to go a little bit into world war one not like super deep but basically just like the american experience with world war one so more or less uh we talked about the spanish-american war and that was one of the first times that the united states really got involved with the european power outside of you know the american revolution and like the war of 1812 for most of american history up to that point the idea was don't get involved with europe you know that was what george washington recommended and they largely didn't do it this is when the united states starts to assert itself as like a colonial power in the spanish-american war so they go to war with the spanish they win they take some territory but Come 1914, when World War I breaks out, the attitude is still largely, do not get involved with Europe. So World War I breaks out, the United States is not allied with any of the powers that are involved in the war, so the U.S. remains neutral. But the difference here is that the United States is culturally closer to the allied powers, which is Britain, France... Uh, later, Italy, but not initially, and uh, Russia. So that's called the Triple Entente. And they're particularly the French and the British, the United States are culturally friendly with these two countries. They're very suspicious of the Germans. I don't think the United States and the Austrian Empire really had much, you know, relations at all. So basically, we are neutral, but US industry and our financial institutions are only dealing with the Allied powers. So if we ever do get involved, it's going to be on the side of the Allied Powers because we do not like the Germans. And during this time, you know, we're being fed propaganda from the British and all that type of stuff. So what, you know, what the Germans end up having to do is they have to do one of two things. They have to either keep the U.S. out of the war or they have to do something to keep the U.S. from being like a meaningful contributor to the war. So over time, you know, the U.S. opinion of Germany worsens and worsens. Uh, this is partially because the Germans were letting their subs sink anything that wasn't flying a central powers flag, which meant American ships or ships that had Americans on them. Uh, famously, they sink a, uh, I think it's an ocean liner, some sort of you know, passenger, yeah, passenger, ship passenger ship called, passenger. called, the, uh, called the Lusitania And uh, it later is shown that the Lusitania was carrying more supplies over to Britain, but at the time that wasn't known. And what was known is that there were Americans on board who were killed. So the United States, they do not declare war during this time, but, you know, they come real close. So the U.S. at this point, you know, they don't like the Germans at all. They want the Allied powers to win. They're just not ready to go to war yet. But then The Germans, they see that, you know, the U.S. is very close to getting involved. So they decide to try to head this off. So this guy who is the foreign minister named Alfred Zimmerman sends a telegram to Mexico. And he says that if the U.S. joins the allied powers, if Mexico declares war and invades and basically distracts the United States so they can't get involved in Europe, that. If the Central Powers win, they will support returning the territory that Mexico lost in the Mexican American War. So, uh, I don't know if Texas was one of the. Texas was not. They would get that back. was
0: that was the Texas. It was like New Mexico, Arizona. Part well, I mean, of I don't know if
1: they were promised Texas, but I know they were promised everything oh. they lost in the Mexican American War. So, um, what happens is the British intercept this telegram immediately, as Zimmerman expected them to. But he didn't expect them to break the the cypher so quickly and be able to read it. So the British break the cypher immediately and send it right over to America. And they're like, you see what Germany's trying to pull here, guys? Come on. Let's what do you think? And, you know, at this point, this is the last straw. Isolationism in the United States pretty much just, you know, is washed away. And on April 4th, 1917, so three years into the war, the United States finally gets involved. And uh, the war ends in November 1918. It ends on uh, what is now uh, now Veterans Day, November 11th. So the U.S. is only involved in World War One for about a year and a half. And this is 1917, so it takes some time to get our military build up and get it over there and get it involved, so the U.S is not in world war one for very long so this is why in the united states you know again there's much less cultural impact from world war one than there is in europe because the europeans it was fought in europe it was the bloodiest war they had ever seen up to that point by far and it it basically entire countries have ptsd from world war one at this point Right. But, um, so the the big surprise here is, like we mentioned, eight of the 12 MLB players who died in World War or who died in these wars, uh, died in World War One. And, I, right. you know, it's it's weird because, again, we were only in there for about a year and a half. Well, and, I think uh, I was, one of the
0: I think one of the things to keep in mind is that as far as I know, and you're you're a lot more knowledgeable in World War One I than I, did, I am. But I think one of the things that's important to keep in mind is that. You know, we think about World War II and we think about the attack on Pearl Harbor and how the next day lines are out, you know, at recruiting uh, places were, uh, you know, out the door and everybody was trying to enlist and stuff. It's my understanding that it was pretty much that way with World War One as well. Like pretty much every able-bodied man was expected to serve, right, everybody yeah. served. You always knew somebody who served. You probably knew somebody who was wounded or got killed. So it was like World War II in that regard of like everybody was involved. So it stands to reason that, you know – a lot of baseball players would have taken part. And there were a lot of baseball players who did take part that didn't get killed. I know Ruth right. was in the national guard, Ty Cobb and Christy Matthewson served in, um, I don't know. Off the top of my head, but some sort of like chemical weapons, um, uh-huh. detachment. And actually that contributed to Christy Mathewson's death. We didn't put him in this list because he died long after that. But, uh, right, I think yeah. it was proven that his exposure to, I think chlorine gas or mustard gas, whatever they were using. Um, like messed up his lungs and that contributed to his early death i think like in his 30s so that's another guy i guess you could include on this list that i didn't think right. about um yeah, but that, so yeah world war 1 a... definitely affected major league baseball
1: mm-hmm. yeah um so th- what i was thinking about when I, while i was doing this research was i i was wondering why the majority you know, two thirds of these guys died in world war 1 when you would think that it would be more world war two. And I I have two theories and I I don't feel confident about either one of them. I have Um, a theory too.
0: I want to hear yours.
1: My first theory is that since it's pre live ball era, and this is the before baseball players are, you know, Babe Ruth level celebrities, uh, these guys are less likely to get special treatment. And it's not like I'm accusing guys after that of getting, of, you know, getting treated with kid gloves. Cause some of them specifically volunteered for combat missions. Like I think Ted Williams did. Yeah. Right. Um, but like, you know, it's a little hard to get around like in the, in the forties and the fifties baseball is the national pastime at this point. These guys are the biggest celebrities in the country. Like other than movie stars, they're probably going to get some special treatment whether or not they want it. Um, world war one, that's not the case. I don't know that that's the reason. That's just one of my thoughts. My other thought is that as I read about these guys, a lot of them are either fringe players or they're just retired by the time the war breaks out. So there probably aren't a lot of better options for them than joining the military just because, and I mean, this is true even to this day. If you have a baseball career and you start early, you're not building a whole lot of like other skills that you're going to be able to work on. And you know, have a career with after your baseball career ends. So a lot of these guys there may not have been much better for them to do than join the military. There is one big exception who we'll talk about. And uh that yeah. you know, that that guy is why I'm not confident about this theory either. Well, so what I, is think, I think
0: I think both of I think both of your ideas are sort of what I was gonna say, in that um yeah well first of all in right like you said in world war ii baseball had grown a lot to that point and it was was the american pastime i think world war one obviously baseball was still a huge part of american culture but it wasn't quite the same amount of superstardom that it was in world war ii Um, yeah because
1: literally specifically because you haven't had babe ruth
0: yet (laughs) yeah we exactly um (laughs) or at least he hadn't become babe ruth yet um right yeah and and so i think that's part of it and um there's a famous quote and i'm paraphrasing i don't have it off the top of my head but bob feller who I think was the first player to enlist after Pearl Harbor. Uh, Hank Greenberg Uh had enlisted before Pearl Harbor and then reenlisted. But um, Bob Feller was the first player, I think, December 8th, he enlisted in the Navy. And he said something to the effect of, I didn't want to have a cushy job passing out bats and balls and building ball fields out of coral reefs. I wanted to see combat. Uh, And he Uh did. He served on the USS Alabama, and he saw a lot of combat. Um, But And there were guys like Ted Williams who refused to, to not see combat. But there were guys like Joe DiMaggio, who went around and they did like propaganda stuff for the army and they served on, you know, service baseball teams and things like that. And There's nothing wrong with that. The needs of the army, you know, they'll tell All you right. what they need from you. Um, and obviously they deemed that important, but I think right. a lot of times well, building players... morale
1: is, you know, if you're running the army, if you're you know general or whatever like building morale is just as important if not more important than having one extra guy on the
0: right right battlefield so So. so there's nothing wrong with the Joe DiMaggio's of the world going around and doing these PR things that like you said it's an important part of maintaining the morale of the army um so I think that was obviously a reason why a lot of these guys you know weren't killed um and then, like you said, a lot of times it would be fringe players. So a lot of these guys you'll see played in one big league game, played in a handful mm-hmm. of games, maybe a few seasons. Um, so they probably weren't going to get the same star treatment. Like a guy like Joe DiMaggio, who they would say, we don't want you to get killed. Um, right. I don't know if you can prove that. I don't think there are any records of people saying these things to guys like Ted Williams or Joe DiMaggio or anything. It's just right. a theory. And it's also like war is random. Like certain people are going to get killed. Some people aren't going to get killed. There are plenty of players who got maimed, who got wounded, you know what I mean, who did but mm. didn't get killed, um, and there are players who who sustained injuries that later on would go on to affect their lives, but it didn't lead to immediate death. So it's war is a random thing, you know. So it's it's I yeah. don't know if there's any one reason we can point to and say, wow, how come we're baseball players that die? die? Um, but yeah, I think I think all of these are probably reasons that contributed to the remarkably low number of because i think we'll get into world war ii later but there were over 500 mlb players few current and future mlb players who served and only two of them died which is a remarkably low number if you look at a, a subset of the population that served so it's i mm-hmm. think probably all contributing factors and also just right. the randomness of war anyway now yeah. that we got the the background yeah. of world war one out of the way let's talk about world war one guys
1: so we'll start with um this guy, whose uh, his name is Bun Troy, okay, and that's not his real first name, but uh, we'll get to what his real name is. <clears throat> this is one of the guys I wrote the most about because I thought he had this interesting story where it seems like this dude had more potential than maybe you know his teams were willing to give him credit for. So uh, let's get into Bun Troy. So uh, born Robert Troy in Germany in 1888. Bunn's family moved to the usa at some point during his childhood a lot of these guys their early life is just fog there no one knows
0: well it was a long time ago record keeping
1: yeah the only reason there's records of these guys at all is because they played baseball so uh his family moved to the usa at some point during his childhood and settled in mcdonald pa just outside of pittsburgh So uh, he plays indie ball for his hometown team. And this is what I thought was amazing is uh, he averaged 11K per nine during that stint.
0: Wow, back uh, then.
1: Yeah, for those of you who don't know, uh, uh, this is an era where double-digit K9 totals are just flat out unheard of. Like Walter Johnson, for example, is like the strikeout king during this time. And his highest, I think, is 7.4K9. So this dude was mowing batters down. This is like the Spencer Strider of, you know, the early 1900s. Um, So understandably, this gets the attention of a scout for the Phillies, and he gets added to the Phillies in 1909. Uh, He does not make any appearances for them because it's late in the season. So he ends up going to spring training with them in 1910, and he does not make the team. And the the cited reason is that he has the stuff and he has the curves, but he treats or he acts like an amateur on the field. Which
0: So they didn't like his attitude?
1: That doesn't sound like a great reason to me to get rid of a dude who has that kind of strikeout stuff. So you know, we we do not see him play major league baseball for another two years. So during this time he floats around in the minors. I think he has one good year. Where he has one like kind of not good year, and then he has a career year for the Adrian Lions, <laughs> another another great minor league team from 1912. So at the end of the minor league seasons, he it, he impresses enough that the Tigers pick him up, and he makes his only MLB start on September 15th, 1912, where he has the unfortunate uh, designation of having to go up against Walter Johnson. <laughs> Oh, man. So he he matches Johnson for six innings. He holds the senator scoreless for six innings. But then he comes unraveled in the seventh. And this may have been the attitude problem they were talking about because he immediately blamed the defense for it. Mm-hmm. And it's been a while since you've played baseball. But, you know, I know from even playing men's league that
0: oh, there
1: yeah. is always that guy who every time anything goes wrong, it's everybody else's fault. He could be this guy, we don't know for sure, but uh, his baseball career mostly ends there. I think he plays for, in the minors for a couple more years, um, and he ends up enlisting in 1917 when uh, World War I breaks out, and he serves as a sergeant in the 80th American uh, Expeditionary Force Division. So back then, military units had way cooler names, like the American Expeditionary Force, uh, and they were nicknamed the Blue Ridge Division, which is another great name. Yeah. So he serves in the Second Battle of the Somme, not the famous one. That was in 1916, and that was mostly the British. Uh, and San Mihil, I don't know if I pronounced that right. I apologize to the French. This is sort of like when we talked about the Japanese national team. Uh, the pronunciations, we're going to try. Um, but he suffers a gunshot wound to the chest during the Argonne Offensive, which ultimately took his life. So uh, he was buried in France for a, a couple of years until his remains were moved back to his hometown of McDonald in 1921, uh, where he receives a hero's welcome. You know, his remains are basically paraded into town uh, in like a, a cart drawn by like four black horses, I think. Uh, he gets a 21-gun salute. There's a 1,000 members of his division there to welcome him home, and uh, that is where he is buried today. So he's buried in McDonald, Pennsylvania. So that's Bun Troy. That's our first World War One guy.
0: Can I ask a question? Yes. Co- correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not a World War One guy, but the Meuse-Argonne offensive was like the month before the war ended, right?
1: Yeah, that was basically like the... This is what, the first time that the Americans are like a real force on their own, and uh, they are—they're finally like joined with the British and the French, and they make an offensive that turns the Western Front pretty much for good. But in 1917, the the Germans are actually winning because they the Russians. I don't want to dovetail too much, but the Russian Revolution happens. The Russians yeah. leave the war and the Germans are able to move all of their eastern front forces over to the west, and they start to win. And it's, <clears throat> it is, in part, American forces starting to arrive that help them turn this back, and the Meuse-Argonne offensive is kind of when it's like, okay, it's looking like it might be over now. So, yeah, it's like the end of the war. You know, again, American involvement is pretty much all the end of the war, but, yeah, the Meuse-Argonne offensive is probably the most substantial american con- contribution in the war so yeah that's bun troy um he has one of the longer stories uh, a lot of these guys there's not n- as much information but there there's a yeah. couple more good ones and then uh well
0: i we'll mean ob- right obviously the players who were killed in combat are going to be a little longer than the guys who died of illness just mm-hmm. by virtue of that being sort of a a longer story that you have to tell right um so you want to yeah, take
1: can... the next
0: guy Sure. So moving along in World War One, like I said, this isn't chronologically by their the date of their death, because All I, right, yeah. I don't know that. Um, but so moving along, we have Tom Burr, who was born in Chicago in 1893 to a wealthy family. Uh, he started as a pitcher at the Choate School and then he enrolled at Williams College, but he went the to Randy pro- Choate computer. School. The Randy Jones School. But then uh-huh. he enrolled at Williams College, but then went pro before he played any games for that school. He appeared in one MLB game for the Yankees on April twenty first, nineteen fourteen, playing center field, but he never received a plate appearance. And that was his only major league playing time.
1: Uh-huh. He
0: returned to Williams College, um, giving up a career in baseball. He returned to Williams College and then he enlisted in the Army before he graduated in nineteen seventeen. He attempted to become an officer, joining the first officers' training corps, but was discharged after contracting severe double pneumonia. I'm not sure oh. what is double about the m- pneumonia, but it sounds it's probably bad. both lungs. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Um, so it was apparently bad enough they discharged him from the army. He tried once again after he recovered to join the first officers' training corps to become to become an officer, um, but he was rejected now because of his age. So he can't catch a break.
1: So right, yeah, this, this dude is just he's he's zigs every time he should have zagged.
0: well he's, you know? he's aching he's aching to serve so Tomber, right. like i said he, he came from a wealthy family so the war is going on at this point he had enlisted and then they discharged him and he couldn't serve anymore so he financed his own trip to france to volunteer as an ambulance driver with the american field service before he enlisted in the american aviation corps so he tried to become an officer was medically discharged tried again now he's rejected because of his age and he's only 24 at this point so i'm not sure what that was all about but i couldn't find any information on why but so then he decided he was going to pay his own way to france and he volunteered as an ambulance driver so he just really he had a heart of service so good for him yeah so
1: this dude did like some world war one rambo stuff where he was like i'm going out there whether you want me to or not
0: exactly so then (laughs) after this happens he's now in france um He's, he finally is able to enlist in the American Aviation Corps. So um, airplanes, aviation is very, very new at this point. I suppose mm-hmm. it's been about 15 years since the airplane was invented. Um, and it was a big part of World War I reconnaissance. There are a lot of fighter planes, things like that. Um, so it was super, super new. And obviously, when something's really new, the technology isn't maybe to where you want it to be. And there were a lot of issues with flying planes. It was a very dangerous occupation to have, not like mm-hmm. we know today where you fly very safely. Right. Um, so he served as a pilot in the thirty first Aero Squadron and later he served as an instructor at the American Flying School in Issoudun, France. I hope I said that right.
1: Yeah. Um, apologies to France again. Yeah. So mm-hmm. while he
0: was at the American Flying School, he was promoted to the rank of first lieutenant. So he finally became an officer and he was given orders to report to the front. On October twelfth, nineteen eighteen, so one month before the war ends, a day after uh burr perished in a mid-air collision with another newport biplane during a training exercise as both planes were shooting at targets so i think it was about 4500 feet they're both shooting at a stationary target and they they just they just collide so both burr and lieutenant kennedy were killed in the crash as both planes fell into the Cazo lake so both pilots it was a single seat plane both pilots were killed which is obviously unfortunate 12 days Mm -hmm. later So there was flaming wreckage that went down into the lake. Um, They couldn't find much. And then 12 days later, one of the fuselages of the plane washed up, which is basically the body of the airplane. Um, Burr's body was recovered, but Lieutenant Kennedy's never was initially burr was buried at the american expeditionary forces cemetery number 29 in La natus france maybe it's La Netou, i'm not sure again apologies to france yeah if this were spanish i'd be doing a lot better so he was initially interred in france at american expeditionary forces cemetery number 29 but he was later reinterred at rose hill cemetery and mausoleum in his hometown of chicago really fast one of the things i thought was interesting about that was i saw i kept reading this and i couldn't understand what was going on it said that burr and some of the other american graves there were deconsecrated i don't i don't really know what uh, that where like in, was, in in france. chicago or in, Fran- no, in, in france no maybe just maybe just because
1: there's nobody buried there anymore
0: i su- i suppose so so they basically were like unblessed like by the church which i thought i thought was strange um but anyway he was reinterred uh at rose hill cemetery mausoleum in chicago and i just think it's worth noting that he died one month before the war ended as we right. saw earlier with bun troy um mm-hmm. which i think makes it even sadder to me so that was tom burr uh what a hero man he kept trying and trying to trying to serve and he finally did it, yeah. it cost him his life and he was only 24 when he died so he was younger than me
1: right again world war one rambo you know this yeah. dude was not taking no for an answer
0: yeah absolutely absolutely if you, don't, so, you don't want me to serve then yeah. i'm
1: gonna go do it on my i'm gonna go freelance
0: yeah <laughs> i mean when we think of the military we think of you know a lot of guys being killed in action uh but he was just as much of a hero even though he never saw combat as far as i know mm-hmm. so yeah combat. i mean dude
1: listen it's it's weird to say it's the thought that counts but it kind of is cuz you know again this dude was told no and he was like i I reject that. So it
0: is, it is. Well, there's a, there's a saying in in the military called the tooth to tail ratio. And basically the thinking of it is your tooth is, you know, the teeth of your forces you have on the front doing the shooting, basically. And then the tail is the back part of your army that you have doing logistics, work, supplies, things like that. And I I don't remember off the top of my head, but I think it's a five to one ratio or 10 to one ratio or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. You basically need a massive, massive amount of people in the back with the gear doing the things to be able to have the smaller amount of people do the actual fighting. So just right. because somebody doesn't see combat doesn't mean they weren't an integral part of the American war machine, which I think mm. is worth noting. Do you want to move on to our next world war one guy?
1: Yeah. So the next guy we're going to look at is a guy named Larry Chapel. Okay. <clears throat> uh, Larry Chapel's born in McCluskey, Illinois. And uh, he played again. This is another guy where his, his early life, more or less just doesn't exist anymore it's just lost to history but uh he plays in several seasons of minor league ball kind of bounce around before he gets picked up by the white Sox in 1913. so uh, in 1913 he appears in 60 games he's not like the world's best hitter but you know he appears in 60 games so he, he he must have been doing something they liked uh because he ends up being traded to the indians and he is uh the biggest bonus player to be traded for the indians i'm not like super clear on how the the system worked back then but i think the idea is that like back then teams would just purchase contracts from each other because players basically were just a commodity Mm
0: -hmm.
1: so uh, i believe he cost eighteen thousand dollars which is a lot of money back then
0: a king ransom back then yeah
1: yeah and uh the player that he is part of the deal for is a little guy named shoeless joe jackson wow so he gets traded for Shoeless Joe, um, gets sent to the Indians. He only appears in three games for the Indians before he is purchased by the Braves, where he plays his final two seasons. And this, unfortunately, is with limited success. Again, a lot of these guys are, are a little fringy. Uh, he returns to minor league ball, and he has his best season as a professional player. He hits 325 for the Salt Lake City Bees. So uh, that's his final season. Uh, he joins the U.S. Army Medical Corps in 1917. But uh, unfortunately, one of the biggest pandemics of all time, the Spanish flu, uh, strikes Larry Chapel. He contracts Spanish flu, working for the medical corps, and he dies soon afterwards. So um, that is uh, unfortunate. You know, again, a lot of these guys are going to die of disease. Disease is the biggest killer in almost every war. It, it's a little known thing but you know, especially in world war one uh because spanish flu is right there afterwards and concurrently but uh he is buried currently in jerseyville illinois So that's larry chapel
0: yeah well we can stick with the theme of the spanish flu if you'd like i can go on to my next guy
1: yes yeah, so uh why don't we do your next guy
0: sure so the next player is harry chapman um, this, he was really hard to find information on. So apologies if this one's going to be short, but I do just want to point out again, baseball's greatest sacrifice. Uh, there's also a website called baseball in wartime that I used and the saber bio mm-hmm. project was a massive help. So all those resources were, were excellent. So thank you to everyone involved there. So Harry Chapman, he was born in severance, Kansas on October 26th, 1885. He made his major league debut at the age of 26 for the Chicago Cubs on October 6th, 1912. So, actually, just before his twenty seventh birthday, he—that's kind of in, a late debut, isn't it? It 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 is a late debut, but um, a lot of these guys were one gamers or a couple gamers. Uh, mm-hmm. Harry Chapman appeared in one hundred and forty seven total big league games over five seasons. He slashed one ninety eight, two sixty nine, two fifty across four hundred sixty plate appearances with eight doubles, five triples, and one home run. So, not much of a hitter. He was a catcher. Um, right. Not much of a hitter, but he was a big leaguer for a couple of seasons.
1: Yeah. Well, back um, then, I mean, this is even still true nowadays, but especially back then, catchers were just not expected to hit.
0: No. no <laughs> like no. it just
1: wasn't part of their job description. Which is what made dudes like Mickey Cochran so, you know, so
0: notable. Yeah, Bill Dickey, those kind of guys, yeah, Yogi Berra. Guys who yeah. were
1: catchers and also hit were an incredible rarity yeah. back then. So that's probably Yogi- why he stuck a lo- around as long as he did.
0: Yeah, Yogi Berra, by the way, another guy who was wounded in World yeah. War II. Um, mm-hmm. He served at D-Day. So anyway, back to Harry Chapman. His career ended in 1917, and he entered the Army later that year. I couldn't find what he did in the Army or what unit he was with. Um, which is unfortunate, but he died five days before his 33rd birthday on October 21st, 1918. So again, just before the end of the war, a couple of weeks um, at State Hospital number three in Nevada, Missouri, from influenza-induced pneumonia. And like you said, the Spanish flu was going around. That's what it was. He's Mm -hmm. buried at McPherson Cemetery in McPherson, Kansas. So that's all I could find on Harry Chapman. Um, Like you said, it's a shame. He died in in the United States. He just died from illness. Um, right, which yeah, like you said, is is a definitely something that happens a lot in wartime, and it's it's a very new phenomenon that we don't have a lot of people dying from disease uh, in wartime, yeah. but also just in the world at large. Like I think malaria is the largest killer of human beings of all time, right? Something like that.
1: Um, I mean I don't know for a fact, but th- that's a believable
0: fact. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like people used to just die of illness all the time, and it's probably over the past less than a hundred years that it's become manageable Um, right and part of the reason
1: why this is rare in war now is it's literally because like most of your casualties in war would come from people dying from disease and you know armies figured out like oh well if we do better sanitation if we have better medical treatment for these guys then you know these guys aren't just going to die waiting for battles to start they're not going to die from minor injuries as
0: much and and uh, and like like trips aren't as gruel like because like up until the invention of like i guess trains but mostly like cars and airplanes like you just to have to walk everywhere yeah. to get somewhere and like yeah, wear yourself smart, out so. now now you don't have that issue and i think mm-hmm. like one of the huge innovations of the civil war was canned food like processed preserved food because mm-hmm. you could you could basically feed an army on the move kind of indefinitely whereas before that you had to sort of live off the land and all right like forage for food, and and so in the Civil War, you could sort of send anybody anywhere and bring food with them. um mm-hmm. So yeah, there are a lot of things that we take for granted now that were huge killers throughout human history, and illness right. is one of them. So yeah, yeah. that's going to be a theme. Yeah, well, why and don't you go so, to your next guy? I'm I'm done with World War One, so
1: you finish. Yeah. Out. So the next guy I have, this guy, this might be the one that I think is that as a baseball fan, the saddest. This guy's name is Ralph Sharman. and uh, he was born in Cleveland, Ohio. And he begins his minor league career at the age of 20 with the Portsmouth Cobblers. Again, another guy. We don't know anything about him until he starts playing professional baseball. Fantastic
0: name, by the way. The Cobblers.
1: (laughs) The Portsmouth Cobblers, yeah. Was Um, this
0: guy Jewish, by the way?
1: I would. That does sound like a Jewish name, Sharman.
0: I'm going to look it up. I, I, I think I remember hearing that. Go ahead. Throw him on
1: Team Israel probably not but maybe maybe if things had gone differently because he hits 397 with five home runs in 393 at bats for the cobblers which five home runs in uh i don't have the year he started but this is again this is the dead ball era more than one home run is impressive so um This dude, as you might expect, you know, he's a great hitter. He rises quickly through the minors. I think he has one year where he kind of falls down on the job, but he bounces back pretty quickly. Uh, So he gets signed by the Philadelphia A's in 1917, and he plays 13 games for them, batting three twenty seven. And by all indications, it really seems like this dude has a bright future. Uh, I believe he's twenty three when he uh, is signed. And again, this dude bats high 300s. You know, he has a lot of power for the time. You know, this dude looks like he's going to be a great player. But unfortunately, 1917 happens to be the year that World War One becomes a thing for the United States. Um, so he enlists in the United States Army. I believe he was uh, an artillery man, which uh, World War One is the first war with modern artillery. So the, this is when This is the first war where the United States in particular is really taking artillery seriously as like a war winner. So he he gets into a pretty important branch. But uh, unfortunately, he drowns in the Alabama River during his training. So um, that is the end of both his life and, you know, what really looked like a promising career. Uh, He was 23 when he died. So, again, really young guy. And he is buried in Cincinnati. So that's Ralph Sharman. He's kind of the biggest, in my opinion, what could have been story here because yeah. he really seems like he was a great hitter, and the A's, you know, at the time are the arguably the best organization in the game. So, you yeah. know, you're looking at a guy who, you know, we, we would have seen him through the live ball era, and you know, I it, there's really no telling what he could have done. So, he's sort of a you know again a what if story
0: yeah but, uh, i will i Ralph will correct Sarban. myself i looked him up not jewish sorry not jewish oh um, yeah, well that is know. really that is really sad though that's one of those like what a waste you know i know
1: yeah and you know they're all what a waste but well you know, yeah but this is the one where as a baseball fan you really want to see what he could have done absolutely um, yeah. yeah so the next guy is a guy named newt halliday it's a great name again this is old-time baseball people are gonna have wild names like this uh, Newt was born in Chicago, Illinois in 1896. And this is a guy who uh, another guy who there's just little information about, but the, the difference here is the only thing baseball reference shows is that he had one at bat in a game for the pirates in 1916, where he struck out for a cool negative a hundred OPS plus. <laughs> Yikes. But, um, What I thought was weird about Nude Halliday was that there's no record of him playing in the minors or anything. I would assume he must have played indie ball or college ball or something, but I couldn't find anything about it. So as far as we know, he only had one at bat for the Pirates. Again, he struck out. And um, yeah, what I wrote here was it appears to be lost to history how much potential he may have had. And he never had the chance to find that out himself as he enlisted in the U.S. Navy in 1917. So during his training in the Navy, he would contract tuberculosis, and he would pass away on April 6, 1918. So he's buried in River Grove, Illinois now. Um, And uh, this is another one where tuberculosis was a huge killer at the time. Uh, A lot of people might know it by its colloquial name, consumption. Um, If you ever read anything by Edgar Allan Poe, he talks about it all the time. Because he knew a lot of people who died from tuberculosis and everybody did at the time. So it's another story of, you know, a guy who just it's arguably was just born at the wrong time. The Spanish flu, tuberculosis, all these things are just going around. And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people are not going to make it because of tuberculosis. So that's Newt Halliday. Um, he is the one with the least information about him. But another guy who who died serving the country so he he deserves as much honor as everybody else does the next guy is my favorite of these guys this guy's name is eddie grant who uh some of you may have heard of he's probably the best known of these world war one guys uh eddie grant was born in 1883 in franklin massachusetts and he got his first taste of baseball playing for his college team at harvard university where he, si- he simultaneously pursued and graduated with a law degree in 1909. Now, it says he got his undergrad in 05 and then his law degree in 09. And the reason that I think it, it took more time is because he made his MLB debut in 1905. So I'm guessing he was kind of juggling those two things. Uh, he's another guy with a connection to Hall of Famer, because he made his debut as an emergency replacement for a guy named Nap Lajoie or Nap LaHoy, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, right. He was uh, suffering from a spike wound, so Nap LaHoy got spiked, and uh, the dye in his sock seeped into the wound and infected the wound so badly that he ha- had to show up to games in a wheelchair because he couldn't walk anymore. Oh,
0: whoa.
1: So What an point, old-time a-
0: baseball injury, too.
1: I know. This is uh, evidently why when players wear stockings they had to have the white sock and then the colored one over it so that he that is there is a rule for that
0: interesting Um,
1: so he only played 65 games and eddie grant was brought in to be his backup and he became known as harvard eddie uh, which is because he went to harvard (laughs) and uh he was known that i like this this is my favorite eddie grant fact he was known for refusing to say, I got it for a pop-up because it was grammatically incorrect. And he would instead say, I have it. <laughs> I love that. That's such grammar <laughs> nerd
0: stuff. That's like something <laughs> my mom would do. <laughs> I know, yeah. Like, that was my favorite now, Eddie now, Grant fact. I'm thinking about it. Couldn't he say, I've got it?
1: Um, He could, but but maybe... Maybe got it is not grammatically correct. I mean, people were big sticklers back then.
0: I really like It's not like it's like, oh, get it or Harvard Eddie, you know, that English teacher. Like he's a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah. He's just being a nerd.
1: (laughs) Yeah. This guy was like arguably the biggest nerd in baseball history. Oh, that's
0: hilarious. (laughs) So he has his
1: law degree. He will not say, I got it because it's grammatically incorrect. He says, I have it instead. And you know what? you can't give him a hard time about it because evidently he was reputed as an excellent fielder and a good base stealer and he he frequently had it yes that's true yeah he would frequently have cause to say i have it (laughs) uh he would go on to serve as the starting third baseman for the reds and the phillies for four seasons um and at the time you know this is kind of an arcane thing to mention but at the time your third baseman was almost always basically just like oh this guy is a shortstop but we have another guy who's a little bit better than him so uh, he plays more like a shortstop essentially he's not a great bat but he's a great fielder and he's fast so th- that's eddie grant's skill set um later in his career uh he the fact that he doesn't hit that well starts to kind of set in and he becomes more of a utility man for his last two or three seasons. Um after retiring in 1915, our boy Harvard Eddie opened his own law practice. <laughs> so this dude's a renaissance man. Yeah, he's a very accomplished individual. And uh he works there, you know, being a lawyer until World War I begins for the United States again in 1917, and he is one of the earliest men to enlist in the war. So he ultimately, uh, I think he finishes with the rank of captain and uh, his most famous story. And this is unfortunately the end of his story as well. um, He his unit loses all of the officers who are superior to him. So he takes command of the whole unit and he commands them during their search for the famous lost battalion in the Argonne forest short version of what the lost battalion is they are a american battalion that advances too far into german lines and ends up getting surrounded and they become kind of this like you know it's not really a lost cause story because in the end about half of them i think maybe a third do make it out but they get surrounded and they basically are under siege from the germans for like six days And the Americans are doing everything they can to try to get these guys supplies, to try to get them more ammunition, all that type of stuff. And it's just not working out. So they did eventually uh, get rescued after six days, uh, but only about a third of them made it out. I uh, I think it was about 450 men and like 150 of them died. Another 150, 160 surrendered. And then the last 150 did make it out. But uh, unfortunately, during the search for the lost battalion, uh, Grant's unit comes under fire from German artillery, and he is killed by an exploding shell in the Argonne forest. So uh, he is buried in Lorraine, France, at the Meuse-Argonne American Cemetery. So uh, thus ends the story of Eddie Grant, a uh, true Renaissance man. Yeah. Harvard Eddie would not say, I got it, <laughs> and went out like a champ. So And
0: another guy who died right before the end of the war, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty
1: much all of these guys die right before the end of the war yeah. again, because the American involvement comes right before the end of the war. But yeah, uh, the true. last guy I have, the last guy I have, this is our final World War One name, is a guy named Harry Glenn. And uh, Harry Glenn is born in 1890 in Shelburne, Indiana. And yet again, I mean, broken record here, but we don't really know anything about him until he begins his minor league career in 1910. And he is a lefty-hitting catcher. So uh, he, he plays for five years in the minors. And uh, he, he performs well enough that in 1915, the Cardinals uh, bring him up to serve as a backup catcher for them. So in this role, he only gets 16 at-bats. He gets five hits, so he bats 313. You know, he acquits himself well. He did okay you know, for what they, they brought him up to do. But unfortunately, he would not return to the majors after that year. He played a couple of more mi- minor league seasons before enlisting in the U.S. Army Signal Corps in 1918, where he settled in as an aviation mechanic. But uh, unfortunately, during his service, uh, he contracted a cold, which eventually intensified into pneumonia, and that took his life in October of that year. So another guy who just right before the, the finish line. And he is buried in, I'm going to try terry haute indiana
0: (laughs) oh terry haute yeah you got it
1: there you go so um yeah that's harry glenn um you know a little bit less than than eddie grant eddie grant is the biggest story of these world war one guys but you know no less no less respectable uh a career of service so that ends world war one and uh, now we're going to get into some stuff that you know is things that are more in the american you know cultural
0: well there is one more guy before we move on to world war ii there's one more guy uh this one's interesting his name is marvin goodwin although his saber bio was listed under marv goodwin so if you're looking him up he's on baseball references marv goodwin marvin goodwin Goodwin
1: is a great like sitcom character name
0: i feel like you know that guy's smart you know what i mean like marvin goodwin yeah he wears glasses you know what I mean? He's really smart. He'll I believe be, you, know, it. you could pay him to take the test for you. Sort of an all Eddie right. Grant
1: type. You
0: know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're making all these things up, by the way. I have no idea about Marvin Goodwin's intelligence. Right, yeah. So, Marvin Goodwin, he was born on January 16th, 1891 in Gordonsville, Virginia. Growing up, he made a name for himself with a blazing fastball and an excellent spitball, and he was actually one of 17 players who was allowed to use the spitter after MLB grandfathered them in after their ban on the spitball. So that's interesting. I I always thought it was a lot more players than that, but it's only seventeen players that were allowed to keep continue using it throughout their career, and he was one of them. So okay.
1: good.
0: So Goodwin pitched in one hundred and two career games, starting forty of them. He compiled a three thirty ERA across four hundred forty seven and a third innings for a ninety one ERA plus. So decent, nothing special, but he was decent. Yeah. He in he enlisted in the U.S. Army Air Corps in December nineteen seventeen. And he and he trained as a pilot in San Antonio and served as an instructor throughout World War One. So he didn't see combat, but he, he was a, f- a flying instructor during World War One. He made right, it through again, World another War tail One guy, yeah. You know? Yeah, he he made it through World War One unscathed. He returned to MLB for the nineteen twenty, the nineteen nineteen through the nineteen twenty two season. So he saw he saw action all this. So he played in MLB before World War One. Then he enlisted. Then after World War One, he went back to it. And then after a couple of years off, he got back to the big leagues in 1925 at the age of 34. And actually, he had a pretty good 1925 season, and he was looking forward to pitching again in 1926. Uh, so his career was not over. He remained, however, in the Army Air Service Reserve after the end of World War One. So he basically was a reservist after mm-hmm. World War One for the following uh, seven years, I suppose. So he continued to be a, a part of the military. On October 18th, 1925, Marvin Goodwin flew a Curtis JN6H Jenny biplane from Ellington Field in Houston as part of the 111th Observation Squadron, 36th Division. So he's on a training flight in Houston. And as he's attempting to land, the plane enters a tailspin at 200 feet. And only Goodwin's Goodwin's excellent piloting skills saved the life and his mechanic, Staff Sergeant W.H. McGrath. So there's two guys in the plane, He's flying. Everything's going well. They're attempting to land at 200 feet, so really, really close to the ground when you're flying. And the plane enters a tailspin. It's really bad situation, and only through Marvin Goodwin's excellent flying was he able to put the, put the plane down at all. So apparently, otherwise, uh, they would have been killed instantly. But he was able to save his own life and also the staff sergeant, W.H. McGrath. So McGrath escaped with only minor injuries, just bruising, basically. And Goodwin suffered multiple fractures to all four limbs, as well as a fracture at the base of the skull. So he's in bad shape. Yeah. So he was able to successfully land the plane, save the life of the other man, um, but he obviously wasn't able to walk away from it. So he Mm -hmm. did survive the landing and he was sent to a hospital. After initially seeming to recover, First Lieutenant Goodwin passed away at 5.05 a.m on October 21st, 1925 in Bap- at Baptist Hospital in Houston. So he survived for another three days. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was the only major leaguer to die while serving, not in wartime, which I thought was interesting. So Marvin Goodwin, uh, I think it's amazing. He he pitched in the big leagues, went and served in World War I, came back, pitched in the big leagues, had a lengthy career, he pitched th- through his 30s. He was looking forward to pitching more. Uh, and then he saved somebody's life during a training accident, and he ultimately died. So another... Another guy didn't make a lot of headlines, not a super splashy name, but a hero. Right. The best, so well, he has
1: Marvin the, good. he has the longest career of anybody so far, right?
0: I think so. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I didn't yeah. look at it off the top of my head, but yeah, probably. Um, So Marvin Goodwin, solid ball player and, uh, and a hero. So it's a shame what happened to him. All right. So we moved through world war one. Um, We did another guy in peacetime. Now we're moving on to world war two. So the first man up is Elmer Gedeon. Elmer Gettian right. was quite the athlete. He lettered right. in football, baseball and track and field of the university of Michigan. And he passed up a chance to make the Olympic track team in 1940 to pursue a career in baseball. So quite a gifted athlete. Uh, he okay, also yeah. was the nephew of a guy named Joe Gettian who played in major league baseball in his own right. And he was part of a gambling scandal uh, where I don't know if he was <laughs> accused of fixing games or he just was betting on games that he was a part of, but he got like blacklisted from major league baseball. So, he oh, kinda got the same yeah, he kinda got the same treatment as the Black Sox. So that's interesting. Right. Um, but so he comes from a baseball family. He was, he was quite an athlete. So at twenty two years old, Gideon played in five games for the nineteen thirty nine Washington Senators, collecting five hits across fifteen at bats. So a three thirty three batting average. Only fifteen at bats, though. Unfortunately, his big Still. his big yeah. Unfortunately, his big league career would be a short one, as he spent the 1940 season in the minors before being drafted into the army in January 1941. So I thought that was interesting. He was drafted prior to the U.S. involvement in World War II, Um, so he, I guess, was sort of just stuck in the military once World War II happened. So, Mm -hmm. not to say he didn't want to be there or anything. I don't know that, but I just thought it was interesting that he was involved even before they got into the war. So Elmer Gideon. Oh, this one's going to be a little bit longer one, by the way. He's a super interesting guy. Hope that's right. That's okay. So. Elmer Gideon trained as a navigator in twin-engine bombers uh, when his life changed on August 9, 1942. Uh, the B-25 Mitchell, which was, a, which was a medium bomber that he was flying in, crashed into a swamp immediately after takeoff. So literally, right into the swamp. Right. Um, and it, it immediately killed two crew members and injured the others. Gettion sustained three broken ribs as well as burns to his back, hands, face, and legs but managed to crawl his way to safety. So he's in a crash. He's in bad shape. He broke some ribs. He suffered severe burns all over his body, and he gets out of the burning wreckage, and he crawls his way to safety. Quite an ordeal. However, after making his way out, Gideon went back into the burning wreckage to rescue Corporal John R. Rarit, who had broken his back and two legs in the crash. So Gideon's in bad shape, and he goes back in to save somebody else. He does save this guy's life, Corporal John R. Rarit, and he, su- he, he suffers burns because of this. So ultimately first Lieutenant Gideon needed three months in the hospital to recover from his injuries, requiring skin grafts to heal his burns. So he's in bad shape. Yeah, um, this guy this, is
1: not doing good at this point in time.
0: Yeah. So this wasn't, uh, these injuries weren't due to being, uh, in combat with the enemy. So he wasn't eligible for the normal valor awards that you would expect, like, you know, the medal of honor, the Distinguished Service right. Cross, even, even a Purple Heart. But he was awarded the Soldier's Medal in honor of his heroic actions that day, which I've come to realize is is sort of uh, like the next best thing that you can get, basically, that isn't uh, because of combat. So that's that's interesting. Right. It's so sort Gideon, of like the non-combat medal of honor. Right, I guess so, yeah. yeah. So Gideon believed that fortune would smile upon him for the rest of his military service, telling his cousin, I had my accident. It's going to be good flying from now on. Uh, he probably shouldn't have said that huh yeah he probably should not unfortunately he wouldn't be so lucky after seeing combat on april 20th 1944 now captain elmer gedion took off from england in a b-26 marauder another medium bomber in a bombing run over northern france so this is in the lead up to d-day heavy bombing campaigns um over occupied france so the bomber group came under heavy anti-aircraft fire at night with Gideon's plane being struck below the cockpit after dropping their payload. So that's that's bad news. The plane's right. co-pilot was able to bail out. With his clothes on fire, he was able to jump out and pull the ripcord. But Captain Gedeon and five others perished in the crash. So mm-hmm. they died in France, um, but they were able to carry out their mission. So Captain Elmer Gideon was initially laid to rest alongside British, British service members in a small cemetery in Saint-Paul, France, but was later yeah. reinterred at Arlington National Cemetery. Gideon was awarded the Soldier's Medal earlier for his training accident and the Air Medal for Valor, as well as a Purple Heart for his wounds inflicted by the enemy. Gideon and Harry O'Neill were the only two MLB players out of more than 500 that served during World War II to be killed during the war. So what a hero. Uh, He already has one heroic instance. He saved somebody's life, and then he goes on to be killed in combat, which is which is a shame, and I forget exactly right. how old he was when he died, but I I think he was like twenty five. So um, this is
1: probably the most decorated guy we're talking about today, right?
0: Uh probably. I didn't think to look look it up, but probably yeah. Um, he,
1: he seems like he's got the strongest case right now. Let's yeah, put it that way. It sounds you know?
0: like it, yeah. Um, so moving on. So we're onto the to the other player who died during World War Two, Harry O'Neill. He's actually a local guy to us. Uh, he's a Philadelphia native. Harry Harry O'Neill had quite a distinguished collegiate career, leading Gettysburg College to league championships in baseball, football, and basketball. So another three-sport athlete. After Mm -hmm. school, O'Neill signed with the Philadelphia Athletics, appearing in one game as a catcher during the 1939 season, failing to record a plate appearance. That would prove to be his only big league contest as O'Neill bounced around from minor league baseball to semi-pro football and basketball in the following years. So he ends up deciding not to pursue a career in baseball, tries other sports, bounces around. And then, in 1942, Harry O'Neill enlists in the United States Marines, serving as a first lieutenant in weapons company, 25th Marine Regiment, 4th Marine Division. He shipped out to the Pacific, seeing combat on both Saipan and Tinian, which were part of MacArthur's island-hopping campaign. Um, and yeah, I those think, are both
1: he, islands in the Pacific Ocean, for those of you yeah. who don't know.
0: so Otherwise,
1: really quick, not remarkable, but, the, yeah, you know. Yeah. yeah,
0: so really quick, just to explain that, because I realize we might be confusing people. Uh, right. Basically, during World War II, in Europe, it's a pretty simple process. There's a lot of land in Europe. that The Germans have taken over. You're attempting to get it back, basically, in very broad strokes. You're just trying to beat the enemy and you know, get everything back to normal. Well, it's a very traditional
1: the... type of war over right. there. It's a land war.
0: Right. In the Pacific theater, it's not as simple because it's mostly ocean in the South Pacific. There was fighting in India and things like that. Um, China. Yeah, but Burma. The... But, yeah. Right. Right. In China and things like that. But as far as the United States is concerned, it was pretty much all in the ocean. So obviously, the Navy had a heavy involvement but uh, M- douglas macarthur who is an overall command of the pacific theater was of the impression that we should work our way up to the islands of japan which is in the north of the in the pacific and so he basically started in australia and said we're going to move our way up taking island by island establishing airfields there and then we'll use our naval power to move upwards and we'll keep establishing air bases on every island so that we can bomb the, the next island and keep moving our way up eventually we'll be in range of the uh japanese mainland which was which worked and basically the last Uh one they needed to get was okinawa enabled to be able to land b-29 super fortresses which were like the greatest bomber of the day Uh, and then they could take off from okinawa and bomb japan so it did work it forced japan's capitulation um and they ultimately were able to use that to drop the atomic bomb on japan and win the war but one of the things um that's important to note is during world war ii the fighting in the pacific was really really intense compared to the Uh, the European theater in North Africa and things like that. Mm. Obviously I wouldn't want to be in combat in either of them, but the Pacific was brutal. The Japanese were basically just a brutal opponent and they would torture prisoners of war. They would rape and kill the civilian population of these islands. um, And they, they, they were sort of, I'm speaking in in generalities here, but for the most part they were fanatical and they weren't going to surrender. So when you got onto these Pacific islands, you had to fight for every single yard and you essentially had to kill pretty much every defender because they weren't willing to be captured there were exceptions to that but for the most part you're gonna have to kill everyone and there were things like you know they would get wounded and then when an american or an allied uh you know medic would go to try and help them they would explode a grenade things like that um so there were a lot of dangers that you might not have to deal with in the european theater that you would have to deal with in the pacific thing is that uh
1: you know like everybody knows about d-day and amphibious landings at the time are the the most difficult thing to do world war one is the first time where it's even possible and every single island mission every single battle and during this island campaign you have to do a d-day and depending on how well garrisoned the island is if it's somewhere like iwo jima or okinawa it's going to be absolutely just a bloodbath yeah, and I believe Tinian was one of the ones that was also well garrisoned. So he's yeah. seeing combat in absolutely ruthless theaters.
0: Yeah, Tinian and Taipan are both absolute slugfests, and so Harry Harry O'Neill is an officer, um, and so he's in. A, I actually I didn't find out, but he's in a leadership position, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, of weapons company, and so he's seeing heavy combat. So he's jumping from island to island, and he's moving forward with the American forces. So he ships out to the Pacific, he sees combat on both Saipan and Tinian, enduring a shrapnel wound to the shoulder in the latter engagement on June 16th, 1944. So on Tinian, he's wounded by the enemy. The following year, O'Neill and the 4th Marine Division took part in the harrowing battle of Iwo Jima, like you mentioned, Tom, another mm-hmm. brutal one, and basically just to give like a little bit of background on that, Iwo Jima was I don't want to say very well Garrison, but but they had thousands of of Japanese soldiers there, <laughs> It's heavily um, fortified, heavily fortified, and they had uh it, it's 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 um it's like a mountainous island, and so they had a network of tunnels that went all through the island, and so basically uh, the Americans land, they encounter n- not the craziest resistance at the beginning, and then as they move inward, the Japanese are moving all over the island. Kind of simultaneously because they have this tunnel system and they're moving mm. all over all the time, popping out, shooting at you, going back in, and it, it was it was like I right. think well over a month um that they had to do this every single day and just grind it out and keep fighting and fighting right. and fighting. So yeah, it was it, it was clear brutal... very
1: early that they're going to have to root out the Japanese resistance by going into these tunnels, yeah. Yeah. which is just not something you want to be involved in. this is a type of warfare that is that nobody is familiar with yeah it is just man to man just you know it it's a slaughter fest at the end of the day iwo jima is one of the worst battles of the war
0: (laughs) it's horrible and when you when you think about these things like you said with d-day one of the big important parts that you want to do is a bombardment beforehand you want to try and soften up their defenses basically you want to have your your warships just sit there and just pound away and pound away and pound away and sometimes that's effective and sometimes that's not but the whole idea is you just fire and fire and fire and try and kill as many of the enemy as you can to make it easier when you land the problem is on iwo jima they're all underground so you can fire as long as you want. They're just going to sit in the mountain, and it's not going right. to really bother them very much. Um yeah. And if you ever watch the movie Letters from Iwo Jima, it does a really good job of, of showing you how this worked. It's Clint Eastwood movie. It's really good. Um. Mm-hmm. And it, this was not enjoyable for the Japanese either. Like this was a horrible yeah. existence of living off barely any rations, getting sick, things like that. So it, it's horrible for both sides. Everyone involved. Um. It's awful, and and a lot of Americans get killed during Iwo Jima. So. He takes part in Iwo Jima, one of the bloodiest battles of the war. He's leading uh, men into battle. So on March 6, 1945, so close to the end of the war, about two months before the end of the war, First Lieutenant Harry O'Neill was killed by a sniper while attacking Japanese positions. He was one of 6,102 United States Marines killed during the five-week battle. That's unbelievable to me, over a Mm five-week span. 6100 people 6100 just americans get killed not to, i think it was right. twenty one thousand casualties in total so that means yeah i was gonna say wounded. that's just
1: killed too yeah, yeah. so yeah so mm-hmm.
0: uh that means there's what i guess seventeen thousand more captured wounded and missing so it's it's just an awful right. it's just an awful place to be um and, and i that believe the, the
1: casualty the- rate for the japanese is close to if not a hundred percent
0: yeah so th- i think there were a i think there were like, a small amount of captured and then mostly yeah. killed
1: Um, it's difficult to imagine how brutal this sort of warfare is
0: yeah this would be horrible and it wasn't even the end of the war is the worst part because then they had to go take okinawa which was another absolute slugfest and that had its own Mm -hmm. issues because there was a significant civilian population in okinawa that was being mistreated by the japanese to go on a little bit of a rabbit trail just because i think it's important to note um Mm -hmm. the japanese were basically telling the okinawan civilians that don't let the americans capture you they'll kill you they'll rape your children Um, and so a lot of the civilians on okinawa killed themselves and their their family rather than let the americans capture them uh Mm -hmm. and the worst part is the americans were going to come and liberate them and let them not be under japanese rule which was horrific so it's right the whole thing was backwards it was really sad it was it was terrible and harry o'neill was killed on iwo jima trying to end this basically so harry o'neill is one of 602 sorry 6102 marines that are killed during iwo jima he was only 27 years old and he left behind a wife ethel and he's buried in arlington cemetery in drexel hill pennsylvania which i drive past all the time so i should probably stop by and see uh harry o'neill's grave there's actually a lot of major leaguers that are buried there believe it or not um so that's harry o'neill hero i don't know what else to say it's yeah
1: Um, yeah it 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 turns into a little bit of a downer to talk about stuff like this because you know, like like we've said multiple times now, like especially like Pacific theater warfare, like if you talk about it and you don't think about it, you can kind of get through it. But if you talk about it and you start thinking about what you're saying, all of a sudden it turns into like oh man, like jeez. Hey, that- it, mm-hmm. it is
0: sad, but I think it's important to note because it's well, it is. Yeah, these are things that people had to do to basically let us live the lives that we do that in basically right. luxury. You know what I mean? Nobody shot at me. I don't think anybody ever will shoot at me. I've never had to shoot at someone else, um, right. and that's kind of a remarkable achievement. That mm-hmm. we're living lives where we don't even have to think about these issues. Like now, we worry about money and stuff like that. Um, right. And other people had to had to die to basically to do this. So I think it's important that we.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that's we what. Uh... That.
1: It's what Memorial Day is about. You know, exactly. That's why we have a holiday for this sort of thing.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And there's a, there's a famous quote. I, I think it's been ascribed to a lot of different people, but it's the whole idea of people come back, they see horrible things in wartime, and they come back and they go, I'm not a hero. The heroes are the guys that didn't come back. And that's basically like the important part is like, you know, we can do a Veterans Day episode and talk about all the people that did amazing things like Bob Feller and Warren Spahn, and Ted Williams, who saw combat, and did these amazing things, and came back and talked about it. I think it's important that we do the talking for these people that can't. So, right. I guess that's why we want to do it. Um, so there's one more guy. We're done with World War Two, sort of. Um, but we're done with the World War Two casualties. I'll put it that way. Right. So. The last man is named Bob Neighbors. Oklahoma and Bob Neighbors was a grinder through and through, is what I wrote. Earning oh, a big man. league, yeah, a little
1: David Eckstein type.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Oklahoma and Bob Neighbors was a grinder through and through, earning a big league call up with the St. Louis Browns in September 1937, but didn't appear in a game. So that's a bummer. He works yeah. through the minor leagues, makes his way up to the majors, and then doesn't get to play. He guts out another minor league season in 1938 and receives another call up in 1939, making his major league debut on September 16th. So he finally gets there. The shortstop collected two hits in seven games with the Browns in his only big league action. So it wasn't a long one, but he, he had a big league career. All right. This is a little bit of a longer uh, entry, by the way, just to let you know. Neighbors World War II. I mean, the, there's,
1: there's just better records of people.
0: Yeah, in exactly. The 40s than there it's is in you know, 1880. <laughs> he, he also had a lengthy military career, which I'm sure helped okay. historians. Neighbors plugged away in the minor leagues during the next two seasons, but tragedy struck in the summer of 1941. While Bob Neighbors was on a road trip, his wife, Winifred, died after being hit by a car. The couple oh. had been married for less than a year. So already before the military is involved, he's going through it. So All now... Right. During World War II, Bob Neighbors answered his country's call, serving in the Army Air Forces with the 22nd Air Transport Training Department. Neighbors deployed to both Europe and the Pacific over the course of the war, earning a reputation as a stellar pilot. While Bob Neighbors made it through the war unscathed, the same couldn't be said for his brothers. Morris Neighbors sustained multiple wounds on his ship. These are his brothers, by the way. Morris Neighbors sustained multiple wounds when his ship, the USS Leutze, I'm not sure, L-E-U-T-Z-E, Morris neighbors. That sounds sustained, like Loitza. Mm. Yeah. Lutz, maybe. I'm not sure. Morris' neighbors sustained multiple wounds when his ship, the USS Loitza, was hit by a kamikaze off the coast of Okinawa on April 6 1945. So that's another thing. Going back to the the Japanese way of waging war during World War II. I'm sure most people right. are familiar with this, but just in case, the kamikaze program was enacted towards the end of the war when Japan when Japan was basically desperate to try and win and they just couldn't. Right. Um, they basically said, look, we're out of trained fighter pilots for the most part we're not making any headway we're losing all this ground we're gonna try anything so they basically had human bombs they would put a a pilot they would give him like a week of training i think three days on how to take off three days on how to fly and then one day on how to crash into a plane so
1: yeah notably zero days on how to land
0: right zero days on how to land so they would take these they would take these young recruits they'd put them in a plane i think they put a 500 pound bomb in the bomb bay or I guess not, I guess it didn't have a bomb bay because of the fighter plane, but whatever. They would equip it with a 500 pound bomb, and uh-huh. then they'd they'd have you fly uh it, towards the American positions, and the Americans are really really close to the Japanese mainland at this point, and they'd have you pick out a target and just fly into it, and you would die, and you right. would attempt to take out an entire ship. And so their whole thinking was, if we could trade one man and one plane for an entire ship, we can kill a lot of Americans and hopefully break their will to fight and have and not win the war, but have them give us uh agreeable right. terms to surrender um and be able to keep some of our possessions in the Pacific. It didn't work. The Americans right. really did not like this, and they ended up dropping the atomic bomb and Japan ended up capitulating. But that's yeah, just it another
1: ended up sort of having the opposite effect and they right. kind of like right. hardened the American resolve.
0: Right. But it's just another horrific thing Uh, that happened during World War II, a war full of horrific things, as we know. Um, And I just can't even imagine, like, it's one thing to fight someone who's trying to shoot you. I can't even imagine what it would be like trying to fight someone who wants to die to kill you. Like, that's amazing to me. And we actually, side note, we both worked for a couple of years at the pennsylvania veterans museum and media which you should check out it's a really cool place yeah. um, i think they're open friday through sunday uh that sounds right 12 to 5 so you should go check it out if you can it's underneath the trader joe's but one of the guys there uh i think he's the chairman of the board his name's ed buffman and he was a World War II. Actually, I think he's still alive as far as I know. I think he's 96, yeah, I haven't 97 heard anything at this point. Yeah. To the, uh, the spry, the really spry. Ed Buffman was always out doing things. So good on him. Yeah. Ed Buffman served on the USS Missouri, as we know from Ed's teachings, the ship that won the war, uh, right. which is the ship that President Truman signed the surrender documents from Japan on. And it was right. the ship that they ended the war on. Mm -hmm. Um, but he would tell stories of how he stared down the barrel at a kamikaze basically of how there were kamikazes that tried to attack the Missouri and he was on an anti-aircraft gun shooting at them. So Mm
1: -hmm. that was
0: remarkable to me when I was growing up. Uh, and so Bob neighbor's brother, Morris, uh, suffered the same fate basically and so anyway sorry getting back to bob neighbors his brother morris neighbors sustained multiple wounds when a ship the uss loitza was hit by a kami- kamikaze off the coast of okinawa on 6 april 1945 so morris neighbors lived but he obviously was wounded during the war mm-hmm. unfortunately 18 days later another brother carl neighbors was serving as a coxswain aboard the uss frederick c davis off the coast of new finland so in canada the ship right. was struck by a torpedo from a German U-boat and Carl Neighbors was one of 115 men that perished in the sinking. So Oof. Bob Neighbors makes it through World War II unscathed, but already he's had a wife get killed. He's had a brother get hit by a kamikaze and suffer wounds. Um, and then he's had another brother get killed during World War II. So he's already had a lot of loss in his life. Mm-hmm. So after the Second World War ends, Bob Neighbors opted to remain in the military rather than continue to pursue a, a career in baseball. After a decade of service, Major Bob Neighbors saw combat in the Korean War while serving with the 13th Bomb Squadron of the 3rd Bombardment Wing. So basically 10 years after um, he joins up for World War II, this is 1952 at this point, he is sent over to Korea during the Korean War um, to fly combat missions. So on August 8th, 1952, Major Bob Nabors volunteered to undertake a bombing run over North Korea. So my understanding from reading the Saber Bio Project was that this mission was assigned to someone else? It was a nighttime bombing raid, uh, over right. a and I'll get into this, but over a, a kind of a, a hot zone, I guess, for lack of a better right. term. Um, and the the pilot of the other uh of the other plane basically gets sick. And Bob Neighbors and his crew, it's a three-man crew, Bob Neighbors and his crew volunteer to take the mission, this right. dangerous mission. So that's right. already- yeah, It growing. might be
1: worth pointing out that, that nighttime bombing raids at this time are like the most dangerous thing you can do as a bombardier. They, yeah.
0: they are dangerous. Uh, I mean, at this point, they have radar and things like that equipped. So it's 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 not quite as much of a death sentence as it probably was in like early World War II, but it's not something you want to be doing. Right. So. So on August 8th, 1952, he volunteers to undertake this bombing run. He departed a Douglas A-26 Invader. So it's sort of a, a light bomber. It's supposed to be uh, in and out. It's a really fast airplane. He right. departs in a Douglas A-26 Invader bomber alongside 1st Lieutenant William L. Holcomb and Staff Sergeant Grady M. Weeks. And I just want to point out, I'm including the other people's names because they might not be baseball players, but these are also people who served and who a yeah. lot of times got killed or wounded, and I think that's important to note. So anyway, he, he departs with First Lieutenant William L. Holcomb and Staff Sergeant Grady M. Weeks. The mission was dangerous as two other invaders had been down in the same area over the past month and another one will be lost only two days later. So basically in a month span, they lose four aircraft, which is not good. And Bob Neighbors knows this heading out and he decides to do it anyway. At 9.30 p.m., the three-man crew of Neighbors' plane radioed back that they had been hit and were bailing out. The three men were never heard from again. The Neighbors' family held out hope that Bob had only been captured and not killed But that hope faded a year later when the war ended and he was not among the prisoners returned to to the United States. So imagine how terrible that is for his family. You know that he goes down. You know that he's missing, missing in action. And your best hope is, oh, maybe he's only in the hands of the enemy, which is still not what you want but you have that hope that maybe he's alive something you know the war will end and he'll come back and then in uh 1953 the war ends and they send back all they repatriate all their prisoners and bob neighbors isn't among them and now you know that he's dead that's got to be right that's got to be horrible so yeah we we like to
1: imagine i mean you see like the you know the images from the end of world war ii that you know it's this this big celebration but yeah, it, it it is important to remember that the end of a war is not a big celebration for everybody. for everybody. So this this family, you know, unfortunately, the end of the war is when they find out for certain that, you know, that their relative is gone now. So right, right. We have to so keep this, that in this, mind as well.
0: The story's not quite over, but they they find out that Bob Neighbors is in fact dead. Mm-hmm. Bob Neighbors left behind his second wife Kathleen and their young son Cameron. Kathleen Neighbors remarried Lieutenant Colonel Ed Fells, who adopted his son Cameron, and Cameron Fells went on to serve in the Air Force himself, just like his father. So I thought that was interesting. And I read right. somewhere that at a Memorial Day ceremony somewhere, uh, Bud Seelig was the commissioner at the time, and he placed a wreath in the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, basically to honor all the MLB players who have been killed. And he had Cameron Fells, Bob's son, in the audience, and he said some words to him, something along the lines of, like, you know, a grateful nation thanks you, something like that. And like, you know, we can never thank you enough for your service and your father's service and your stepfather. So I thought that was interesting that he, in particular, was at least honored by MLB um, as a player who died. So 34-year-old Bob Neighbors was the only major leaguer killed in the Korean War and the only big leaguer to die in the service of his country since World War II. So thus ends our list of players who have been killed. Obviously, serving in the military and playing in Major League Baseball is an incredibly rare thing now now that we have an all-volunteer army and people don't get drafted mm. and also now that athletes are at such a high level that you basically have to be training your entire life to make it to that point you can't really do two things right. there are two guys well, and there's point so out...
1: much money invested in these guys that mlb teams are going to do anything they can yeah they're not to gonna yeah. keep them well from i remember having um, just go over
0: you remember brian pena he was like a backup catcher on the reds yeah. uh mm. i remember at one point he well, he was a cuban guy and i guess he uh you know gain citizenship defected, in the united right? states yeah but i i guess he acquired citizenship in the united states and i remember at one point he was uh like really patriotic and he announced that he was joining the army reserve and he was going to do that like during his off time in, in from major league baseball and i okay. guess the reds or the cardinals or whoever he was playing with was like you can't do that
1: yeah and like, so no.
0: <laughs> yeah so i remember he had to like pull it back and be like oh i'm gonna try and work with the uso then or something to, to like do my part so Uh, That's just like a a reason. And I don't blame MLB teams like it's 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 not really a need that the the country faces right now. Um, Mm -hmm. So I don't blame them. But that was something interesting. But I do want to point out two guys really fast. Um, There were a a handful of MLB players, I think, who uh, served during Vietnam. Um, and i know there were a lot of guys because there was a draft back then who served in like a reserve capacity i know nolan ryan and i think rod carew were both guys who served in like the army reserve or the national guard during that um but these mm-hmm. like they, after the korea really after world war ii you didn't have mlb players seeing combat at all uh obviously right. bob neighbors is an exception because he stayed in long enough to see korea um and then after vietnam there there hasn't been a draft it's not really been a thing but there are two guys right. that i want to point out and these aren't casualties but there's a guy named Mitch Harris on the Cardinals. I think in 2015, and a guy named Chris Rowley who pitched for the Blue Jays a couple of years ago. I think 2018, 2019. Uh, and Rowley went to West Point, and then he served in the Army. And then Harris was a an Annapolis guy. He went to the Naval Academy, and then he served aboard an aircraft carrier. And they both uh, later went on after their big league or after their military career to play in the big leagues. And there's one more guy named Noah Song who was a Rule Five pick of the Phillies this past year. He was another Annapolis guy. He graduated. He was a uh, uh, an av- a naval aviator. I think he's like 23, 24 years old. And he mm-hmm. now has been put on like inactive duty, basically. He's like a reservist. Um, and he's like with the Phillies now, he's technically a major leaguer because he's on the major league injured list. And at some right. point, he could be another guy who, if the Phillies deem so, he could become a major leaguer who has now served. So that would be three guys recently. But um, – okay. Yeah, I think the days of major leaguers seeing combat is probably over. There might be an exception right. here and there. But I'm glad to say that as far as I can tell, I think this list will be done, which is right. good.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the only way you would ever see it is if some like cataclysmic war broke out. Right. And you know, that's one. There's no good way to predict something like that. And two, no. it's not the sort of thing that you want to talk about. You know, no, you don't no. want to be like,
0: I guess. I how guess do you Pat... think
1: World War Three is going to start, <laughs> <Yeah>. Ethan?
0: <laughs> I, I guess so. the Pat Tillman thing could happen, where somebody could have a career and then decide to go into the military and, and maybe right. die that way. But uh, yeah, like you said, these aren't really things that we should keep talking about. Um, right. so Plus, let's, you know, just, uh...
1: our time does draw to a close. Um, yeah,
0: this is already going to be a long episode. Um, yes.
1: But it's Are it's there worth any, being long.
0: It's totally worth being long. Are there any uh, last thoughts that you have on any of this or any of the, the players or anything?
1: I mean, I think I think we uh, we were more than willing to you know to branch off for a little bit to talk about you know things that we thought needed to be brought up. So I think you know I think we've covered most of what I you know, I think we've covered everything I would want to cover. You know, yeah, I, I could talk about you know mlb's memorial day hats or whatever what i think of them but that's not really the time for it no so well maybe, yeah we, we maybe we on did a different have that, episode
0: <laughs> we did have that discussion beforehand where we sort of were like maybe we should try and tone it down a little bit and not be silly and stuff because it's right. not really it's you've not noticed really there have been zero dropper. drops in this episode yeah <laughs> there have been zero drops um But yeah, I I think, I think it's important that we remember these people and they're all not household names, which I think is important. So we can do an episode later and talk about Ted Williams and Warren Spahn and stuff, but I think it's important that we talk about, I think we will, you know, yeah, yeah, I would like to, but I think it's important that we talk about these guys. So I just hope that people, you know, keep that in mind. And I guess I know it's sort of cliche, but you know, Memorial day, isn't just a day off from school and it's not just a day off from work and you're like, yeah, go barbecue. It's fun. Like that's, you know, that's the point, but yeah. like, really, the point of it is to remember that people had to die so that we could have this great life right. that we have. So, I think we yeah, should.
1: The way I look at it is, you know, remember this, you know, honor the the people who gave their life for the country and then go party. Exactly. Because if yeah. they were here, that's what they would be doing.
0: Right. That's what they would so, be doing. You're right. 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 You know,
1: pretty not pretty... to, you know, make a downer episode or anything. I know that we're usually like pretty goofy. And, I, you know, I don't think it was just entirely, you know, just iron face, you know. Let's talk about things that suck.
0: No, I think know? we're loose enough.
1: But, you know, yeah, like it's not appropriate to be like, you know, blast and Sopranos drops while we're talking about this right. sort of thing. So, you know, that was a decision that we made. Don't worry. The, the board is not gone. It will no, be back no, no, in the next all. episode. I, no. I, would, I don't think I would be able to part with it for more than one episode. Anyway, I have too much no. fun with it. But um, but yeah, so... oh, we
0: do have one thing upcoming that I would like to talk about for a second. Ooh. Ooh. I know we okay. got to get out of here. Um, okay. but i just want to say we i reached out uh, as everybody knows we're big australian baseball league fans yes and i love the australian baseball league i've loved watching it over the past few years i think it's growing i think it's great and baseball in australia is better All for right. it how we love
1: seeing what australia was able to do in the world baseball classic yes, australia not had a
0: run they had a historic run uh, and also Liam Hendricks is on his way back to a major league mound. He's uh, during, doing a rehab assignment after overcoming cancer. Liam Hendricks. Awesome. Uh, yeah. However, the Australian baseball league was dealt a bit of a blow. They went from six teams a few years ago. They expanded to eight teams. They added a team. They have a, a, six teams in Australia. They added another one in Geelong. It's Korean team. It's uh, like a KBO farm team, basically. Mm. And then they have another team in uh, Auckland, the Auckland to Atara, which is in New Zealand. And under normal circumstances, that's no problem. The two countries have a very amicable relationship. It's very easy to go back and forth. It worked out great. So the 2019 season was really, really good. They built off of that the 2020 season. So before the pandemic, they did really, Mm -hmm. really well. They set records in attendance. They made the playoffs. uh, Baseball in New Zealand was on the rise. It was excellent. Then the like pandemic they were probably happens. the
1: most fun team in the ABL.
0: They probably were. And they had some big leaders. They had like Josh Coleman to play for them and stuff like that. It was really cool. However, we got some
1: gear, some Auckland Tuatara We do, gear.
0: We do. We got some gear. It was really cool. They were awesome. However, the problem was the pandemic happens. Uh, that obviously derails everything. Um, the league shuts down for a season. They come back. And uh, the Tuatara faced a mountain of issues. The Australian Baseball League as a whole faces a lot of issues because Australia was pretty like draconian with the COVID 19 lockdowns and stuff like that. But it was yeah, even Yeah, they worse. went hard. They, right. they went hard. Worse because,
1: as opposed to going home.
0: Right. It was even worse mm-hmm. because the Tuatara had to not only deal with Australia's regulations, they had to deal with New Zealand's regulations as well and mm-hmm. the issue of travel back and forth. Um, and on top of that, they had a bunch of their home games rained out. So they lost out on a lot of revenue from that. So basically, to make it quick, everything conspired against the Tuatara. They lost a bunch of money. I think they filed for bankruptcy. If not, they basically weren't able to pay their creditors, and they had to suspend operations. So the Tuatara are done. They are now in the liquidation process. And it seems as though baseball in New Zealand, at least on a professional level, is over, and I don't know if it's going to come back. The reason I know about all this is because I read an article, I think it's called Zealand, and it's just like an online newspaper, and the guy who wrote the article was called David Long, and I clicked on his author tab, and he had a bunch of um, articles about the, the Auckland Tuatara, and he had an article basically summarizing the fall of the Auckland Tuatara, everything that went wrong, and why this happened. And I went, wow, this is really interesting. And I didn't know about a lot of this, so I just emailed him and was like, "Hey, David, I have this podcast. Would you like to come on and talk about the Tuatara?" He said, "Great, no problem." So we will be having David on at some point to share his, uh, I guess, expertise, um, his, his insight. insight. Yeah, we'll have, we'll have David on to share his insight into the Auckland Tuatara and anything else about the Australian baseball that he wants to talk about. So that's something yeah. to look forward to because I I, I want to learn about like the ins and outs of what happened and why it didn't it didn't work out. So right. That's that. If you want to hit us up about anything, um, feel free to reach out at the baseball pod Two at Gmail or on Twitter and the baseball pod at gmail.com. No, sorry. It's the, the baseball podcast too on Twitter and the baseball pod go. at gmail.com feel free to email us if you want to come on the show if you have any questions, if you want to make fun of us, that's perfectly fine So anyway, that would arguably gonna, be preferable that would be the best, yeah, we already had a few blasting us, so we might as well add to it um, this is a long <laughs> episode, thank you for sticking with us, I think it was an important thing to do any other words yeah. you want to say, Tom?
1: Um. no, I think uh, I think I'm ready to wrap it up, as they say you know, I would never <laughs> say anything like that but that's what some people dead. call it yeah, yeah. Well, um, so everyone... again, unfortunately, no drops. So our traditional ending. I don't even have the soundboard open. So yeah. look uh,
0: forward to it in the next episode of the yeah. baseball podcast.
1: The baseball podcast. And you know what? Why don't we do it manual, as always?
0: His, his name, name is Dan. Is ugla. Dan ugla <laughs> Thanks for We
1: will see you on the next one.